We know what the Word of God says about Jesus. He came and He was full of grace and truth. He is still full of grace and truth. And the Scripture says, And of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Apart from Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. I take that very literally. We cannot do anything. And we revel in the truth that God's power is made perfect, not in our strength, but in His weakness. So it's amazing, isn't it? How God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. We praise the Lord that He uses people like us to glorify Him in every aspect of our lives. Let's pray and extol the Lord for who He is and how He has chosen us by His own will to be His children. Father, we thank You that You chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in Your sight. We thank You in Your unexplainable, otherworldly kind of love that You predestined us to be adopted as Your children. You lavished Your grace upon us. We are stunned when we consider what You did in sending Your only begotten Son who knew nothing of sin, who only knew the luxury of being worshipped without exception or without ceasing in heaven to be one of us. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in you. And now, Lord, we pray as we open your word that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, so that we may apply those things you would have us to hear and learn today to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. This morning we're going to look at a passage from the Gospel of Mark, which on the surface might seem odd for the Sunday before Christmas, but I believe you will see it has everything to do with Christmas in a sense. Mark chapter 3, verse 20 from the New American Standard Bible reads as follows. And Jesus came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless 
He first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. It is a trustworthy saying deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul added a postscript to that statement, of whom I am foremost. We've seen how this is relevant to this season of the year, any season for that matter, because Jesus came to save sinners, the name which God the Father ordered through an angel to Joseph, the foster father of Jesus, to give to this child who was born of a virgin, was Jesus because he will save all of his people who put their faith in him from their sins. Isn't it a wonderful story? The story of the incarnation, which eventuated in the passion of Christ, his death, according to the scripture, his burial, and then his being raised again, according to to the scripture after three days. So we think about the Apostle Paul for a moment before we dive into this passage. The Apostle Paul, earlier in his ministry, made this statement about himself. He said, I am the least of the apostles. And then sometime later, as he wrote to the Ephesians, he said, I am the least of the saints. And then going once again to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, I am the worst, or I like the King James Version, the chief of sinners. The question is, did Paul regress in his relationship with God? Did he lose ground in his relationship with God over the time that passed between his first writing to the Corinthians, where he says, I'm the least of the apostles, until he says, I'm the chief of sinners? I don't think so. I believe he grew all the time and all the more. So what is this about? Did Paul write that to Timothy for effect? Well, for impact, for sure, but not for effect. The Apostle Paul didn't have a hypocritical bone in his body after he was made a new creature in Christ, having encountered the Lord on the road to Damascus. He was transparent, totally open with people about who he was. This is what I think happened. I'm going to illustrate it this way. I cannot remember how many years ago I heard this illustration related to this point. But it stuck with me for probably four decades now. Suppose that you were born into a room of total darkness. That darkness was not airtight. Therefore, not only did oxygen get to you, but also dust would find its way through the cracks and crevices in the exterior of that room, and it attached to you. And then all of a sudden, the doors burst open, and light flooded into your life. For the first time, you were blinded by the light at first, but as your eyes adjusted to the light... You began to be irresistibly drawn toward that light. 
And as you grew closer and closer, you recognized that that light emanated from a personage. This personage you came to know is Jesus Christ. You came to revel in that light and trust Jesus. But as you grew closer to him, you began to notice the dirt on your clothing and on your person. And it seemed like you could never get it all out the closer you came to him. We know that if we are in Christ, we have been cleansed from our sin, but we become more and more aware of those flaws in our being. Even after we come to Christ, those personality defects that are incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ and certainly not like Jesus in his temperament and personality. So I think that's what happened to Paul. I know that's what's happened in my life. The older I've gotten, the more appreciative I have become of the grace of God. Because I know I depend fully on His mercy and His grace. I would not be a child of God based on anything that's worthwhile in me, but only by that which has been conferred upon me. It is a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save you if you have been born again, and me by his grace. But also, we read from 1 John chapter 3 a bit earlier that the Son of God appeared for this to destroy the works of the devil. He came to save sinners. That's the general message of the gospel and the incarnation. But subsidiary to that, but not irrelevant for sure to you and me, he came to destroy the works of the devil. We see this in practice in this passage of Scripture that we're considering from Mark chapter 3 today. The first thing that we notice is there's unbelief represented in this story. Two groups of people exercised unbelief. First group were members of Jesus' family. He came home. And when it, the text says he came home, he was not coming to his home of origin. He came to Capernaum. This was the headquarters of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. He came there. It was home for him. He came home, the text tells us. And the crowd gathered again. Everywhere Jesus went, there was a crowd. If you'll turn back for a moment to the first chapter of Mark, I would like to read beginning with verse 44 and to the end of the chapter, two short verses which iterates what I've just said. In verse 44, he said to them, See that you say nothing to anyone. Go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. He's talking to a leper whom he has cleansed. Look at verse 45. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely, that is the leper, and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. Jesus was flocked 
by people wherever he found himself. This is Jesus Christ. He is a magnet for people who are under the influence of the God of this age who seeks to destroy people. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That is, of course, the devil himself. So here's Jesus, and he's home in Capernaum. And he couldn't even eat a meal, nor could his apostles, is what the text says in this passage in verse 20 of Mark chapter 3. And then in verse 21, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he's lost his senses. Can you imagine? We know there were at least six siblings. We know this from Matthew's gospel. The names of the brothers are given. There were four of them. Two of them were female, at least, sisters, plural. There could have been four sisters for all we know, but... There was a large family, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, was with them, and they come to Christ, and they say, come home, you're embarrassing us. They thought Jesus was mad. That was the first group that we encounter in this passage of Scripture. Now, the good news, I'm going to jump forward a bit, is that we know James trusted Jesus as his Savior, and his Lord. I think it would have been hardest for James. The reason being is because he was number two. Some of you are number two. You ever feel like you're not quite as well favored in the family because you're number two? And especially if you're the same gender as number one? It happens. And sibling rivalry rears its ugly head. James, I think, probably had as hard a time as anybody embracing Jesus as his Lord and his Messiah. In the book of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the people, individuals, to whom Jesus appeared one-on-one in his resurrected body. And he names Cephas. We know him as Peter. And we can see why he would have appeared to Peter, because Peter was the one who denied him, right? And then he appeared to Paul. Paul says, as one untimely born, as he describes himself, Paul was astonished that Jesus would appear to him based on his track record related to Christ and to those who followed Christ. Remember, when Peter denied Christ and he looked at Jesus when the cock crowed the third time, Jesus' eyes met him and he burst into tears, Peter did, and he bolted from the, the courtyard of Caiaphas. But when Paul was intercepted by the resurrected Christ, do you remember what Paul said to him? Peter said to Paul, I'll get it right the third time. <laughs> Jesus said to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Jesus is in heaven, Correct. How was Paul persecuting Jesus? He was hounding the church, wasn't he? He was not only hounding them, he was pounding them. He was beating them. He was dragging them away to prison. He had a certificate. It was like a warrant from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. He was given permission under 
what would be the equivalent of a fatwa today from Islam from the leaders of Israel to go and find these people who had defected to Christ, Jesus Christ, thinking he was the Messiah. And then he became one of them. Amazing. And then another individual shows up, James, of all people. Why James? He's his brother, remember? He's number two. Because undoubtedly there had been a lot of animosity from James' side, resentment toward Jesus as they grew up together in the home of Mary and Joseph. So it was hard, I know, for that man James, but for Jesus too. And this situation would have been difficult. They thought he was crazy. Here's the second group, though. And these people were known as the scribes. Now, let's, let's consider the first basic idea which is given to us in this passage of Scripture about the tragedy of unbelief. Here it is. The tragedy of unbelief is that it leads to self-deception. Let's look at verse 23. Actually, 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. There's some inconsistency in this kind of logic, isn't there? And Beelzebub, by the way, was a name that was assigned to Satan. It meant the Lord of the flies or the Lord of dung. It also meant the Lord of the house. It was the devil. He had a household. He had a kingdom. And he was in charge of that kingdom. And the accusation by these scribes who would be the equivalent of theologians. They were people who knew the prophecies regarding the coming Messiah. They had no misunderstanding in terms of their intellectual assent to the coming of the Messiah. They knew what Micah 5.2 says, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And they knew all the other many prophecies related to, to the coming Messiah. And some of those were already verifiable in the life of Jesus and fulfilled. There was extra biblical literature which talked about the fact that the Messiah, when the Messiah would come, that the Messiah would be one whose ministry would be characterized by great power of the Holy Spirit. We Understand that from the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, here we are in this passage of Scripture. We're eavesdropping on this conversation. And we see these people saying that Jesus was casting out demons. He was himself possessed of an unclean spirit. And look what Jesus says to them. Jesus refutes their argument exposes the fallacy of it. Look at verse 23. And he called them to himself and began to speak to them in parables. Let's stop here just a moment. He called them to himself. Now, he's talking about the scribes who were there. And these scribes 
were a distance away from Jesus. Why, we really don't know. Could be they were afraid of getting too close to him. Maybe think he, thinking he might do something to cast out demons from them. I don't know. But nevertheless, he calls them to himself. Jesus had no fear of these people. He calls them. He invites them to come a little closer so they can really hear what he's going to say in his refutation of their argument and their position. Look what he says in this first parable. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Satan has a kingdom. It's described as the domain of darkness in Colossians chapter 1. It's also seen in what John says about the world. The whole world lies under the control of the evil one. That would be the world system. That would consist of the lust of the eyes, wanting things, materialism. It would exist in the form of the lust of the flesh. That would be hedonism, living for pleasure, all kinds of pleasure. And it would be consisted of the boastful pride of life, which would be loving self. That's the domain of the devil. He has a kingdom. And by the way, he commands absolute loyalty of all his minions in that kingdom. I would be speaking now about the demons. There was no rebellion anymore in that group, for sure. So he would not tolerate any kind of division. He would squelch it as quickly as he became aware of it, for sure. And he says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. It goes on to say, if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. That's true, isn't it? Let me make an application, which is not really on Jesus' mind probably at this point. He's showing the fallacy and the thinking of these scribes. And they're accusing him of being an agent of the devil, possessed of an unclean spirit. In any human organism where there is division, it is the beginning of the end of that organization, is it? Or organism. Think about a family. A family is divided by Satan, in some cases, divided by selfishness on the part of the members. They don't get along, husband and wife, or parents and children, or children toward their parents, or siblings with one another. It cannot stand. It's true of a nation. It's true of any entity. A nation divided, a house divided, a kingdom divided, it cannot stand. He goes on to say in verse 26, If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he is finished. Now look, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying Satan, he, Jesus is going on record. He's putting the devil on notice here. You're finished. What was the basis of his making such a statement? Because he knew that he had come to destroy the works of the devil himself. That's what John writes in 1 John chapter 3. Let's think about the things that 
God used Jesus to destroy that were the works of the devil. Sin, certainly. Demon possession and oppression, certainly. Also, death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But God has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All those things Jesus came to destroy. And when we think about our own lives, we think what a blessing it is that He did, in fact, do that, just that. He destroyed sin by becoming sin on our behalf on the cross so that now that which separated us before we received Christ is no longer able to be a roadblock between us and a relationship with the living God. What a beautiful thing has been done for us in the destruction of sin. And then in the area of possession or oppression, whatever term you might wish to use, the word demon possession really is not in the Bible in the original language. It is represented by the idea of demonized is the idea when it comes up, demonized. So can the devil demonize you now if you're a child of God? Some would say yes. I don't believe the Bible substantiates that. Here's why. In 1 John chapter 4, the Bible says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Who is in us? We read from 1 John chapter 3, 8 and 9. And verse 9 says that God's seed lives in us. It is the Spirit of Christ who indwells us. And consequently, the devil cannot have his way with us. We cooperate with the devil when we disobey God and we get off track in our walk with the Lord, but he cannot in any way indwell us. Why? Because Jesus will root him out. There's no room for Jesus and Satan in the same person. Once you receive Christ and you claim the Lordship of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, you declare Christ your Lord. The result is that Satan no longer can have the capacity to haunt you. Now, we do know that there is evidence of Satan's trying to hurt us. Job is a great example of that. And then Paul alludes to the fact that he received a messenger from Satan. It was some sort of physical ailment, I'm sure. And that's another thing that the Lord, we see in his ministry. He would do something to sickness, wouldn't he? He would banish sickness. He had power over sickness, too. Not just sin, not just demonization, not just death, but also sickness. So we know the Lord was busy about this. But what we do know also is what Satan might mean for evil for us, God means for good. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So we must understand that 
when Christ came to save us, He came to set us free. That's what the Scripture said. He came to set the captives free. We were once citizens of the domain of darkness, but He came to set us free from the influence and the terrorizing of Satan. Let's go back to the passage of Scripture we're looking at. He's finished. Praise the Lord for that. This is good news. Look at verse 27. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Jesus, I'm sure, is thinking of himself. What did Jesus do? He bound the devil so that the devil could not continue to have free reign over what happens in the world. Aren't you grateful that that's the case? Now, let's think about these scribes a moment, and to a lesser degree, the family members of Jesus. The scribes, they were people, as I said, they knew what the Bible that they would have called the Bible. They didn't use that word. It would be the Torah, the law and the prophets, and also the Psalms and associated writings said about the coming Messiah. They knew that, but they rejected it in the face of the threat that brought to their own authority and their own power. There's a verse of Scripture in 1 John chapter 1 that applies to these people and to people today, too, who have knowledge of who Jesus is, but they refuse to put their trust in him. They prefer their own rulership in their lives over against the rulership of Christ in their lives. This verse says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There is no better picture to illustrate that kind of self-deception than in the lives of these scribes. They had every reason, by virtue of their access to the oracles of God, they studied the Scripture and they refused to see Christ in the Scripture. And the Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures we know, give testimony to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are here today, and it happens that you are a person who resides in unbelief and you are considering believing or you might believe if you were given enough evidence to believe, then please understand there is one short step away from considering belief to being in a place of unbelief. And it's sad to deceive yourselves. We are sinners without exception. That's what the Bible teaches. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we need to humble ourselves before God and receive the forgiveness of Christ. Well, let's finish the look at this passage with another emphasis I believe is found in the last three verses of the text. It's the tragedy of unbelief in that it leads to self-destruction. If you persist or I persist in unbelief, the end is not good 
In fact, it's totally devastating if we are to do that. There's a story from Greek mythology, and I'm not putting it anywhere near the level of Scripture, so don't miss here. But it illustrates the danger of not believing what is true. The story is about a father and a son who were put in prison on their island kingdom of Crete. Daedalus was the father and Icarus was the son. And the father Daedalus was very ingenious and he was able to fashion wings out of wax and feathers that could be attached to him and his son so that they could fly out of their captivity and be free. We know that's far-fetched, of course. Marvel couldn't even come up with that idea, I don't guess, today. But what we do know is that as the story went, Daedalus the father, in his wisdom, warned his son. He had some sense, obviously, of the capriciousness of his son. And he said to Icarus, don't fly too close to the sun because if you do, the heat of the sun will melt the wax from which these wings have been fashioned and you will plummet to your death in the sea. Well, Icarus said, yes, Father. Then they launch off and lo and behold, these wings work. But Icarus is so intoxicated with his capacity to fly that he forgets about the warning which his father has given him. He refuses to believe it, and he flies ever closer to the sun. And you know the rest of the story probably, what happened. The wings melted, and he plummeted to his death in the sea. Why? He didn't believe what his father told him. We have a heavenly father who tells us very clearly what the outcome of our not believing in Jesus is. Listen to what he says in John 3:36. He who believes in the Son of God has eternal life. But he who does not believe the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's an ominous statement, isn't it? Especially the last part. The wrath of God abides on him. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible says it is a terrible thing, a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And the implication is to be the object of his wrath. God is a holy God. Yes, he is a God of love, for sure. But his holiness and his justice require that he do something to punish that which is wrong and evil. And therefore, the beauty of the gospel, how Jesus became one of us, born of a virgin. And by the way, he had to be born of a virgin. Why? Because sin entered through one man, Adam, and from Adam to all other men. The seed of the Father is the conveyor of the sinful nature to generation after generation after generation. This is why Mary had to be a virgin to bear this child, so that he would not have a sinful nature. In order for our sins to be forgiven, God had to become man 
He was God already, and the combination of fully human and fully God made him the only acceptable sacrifice to die for our sins and be the punishment for our sins. A perfect sacrifice. A lamb without blemish. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus was the one who came to set us free from our sin. He's the only one who could do that. And He delivered us from self-destruction. Apart from Christ, every human being is on a collision course with the wrath of God. But Jesus absorbed all that wrath. Do you remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember that? Do you recall what he asked the Father three times? Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. What did he mean by that? What was the cup he asked to be removed? The cup was the wrath of God. When you study the concept of the cup in the Old Testament, that's the emphasis on that. The wrath of God. And Jesus was the only one qualified to do that. And he wrestled with it in his humanity. And of course, thank God, he did not depart from his commitment. As he said, On more than one occasion, I've come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There was no doubt about what Jesus would do, but in his humanity, he wrestled with that. And in the process, what did he do for us? He gave us deliverance from our sin and from the domain of darkness, remembering he came to save sinners. That's why he came into the world. And he came to deliver us also from the works of the devil, to destroy The works of the devil. Let's look at verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Let's stop here. What is a blasphemy? It's a verbal expression of dishonoring God to the max, of usurping the role of God. In the case of Jesus, the accusation against him was that he claimed to be God. Yeah, he was God. That was the point. He was God. But that flew all over these scribes and others like them who did not accept Jesus. They refused They were self-deceived when they said there was no sin. They were fine. Remember, the Pharisees were like that compared to the rest of the population. They were so eaten up with their own self-righteousness. But we know that Jesus came and he did not blaspheme God. He showed the way to God. In fact, he was and remains the way to God. Verse 29 Jesus says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Many times this teaching of Jesus, which appears only in Mark chapter 3, is a teaching which is called the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin. Is there a sin which I can commit that is unforgivable by God, an eternal sin? Whatever word you may want to use for it, I like the idea that Jesus uses here. It's his word, eternal sin. K. 
Can Jesus not forgive that? Well, here's the only sin. And let me pause just a moment before I forget it. If you worry about having committed that sin, the good news is you haven't because you're still worried about it. One of the things which is characteristic of a person who has committed that sin is that that person has so hardened his or her heart against God, has steeled his or her her heart by his or her will against God, that nothing can break through that hardened heart. A figure in the Old Testament comes to my mind as one who's hardened his heart. Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh? The Pharaoh who was in charge of the great empire of Egypt when Moses was sent to deliver the children. On more than one occasion in the description of what happened when God began to send plagues which were aimed particularly not just at Pharaoh, but against the gods of the Egyptians to show how inferior their gods were to the one true God, Yahweh. And you you remember how the scripture says, after many of these plagues, there were ten total, but after several of those plagues, the Bible says, he hardened his heart. Do you remember that? He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. And it came to the point where his heart was so hard that it was too late for him to believe. He had all kinds of encounters with the power of God and the person of God, and he refused to trust God. Can that happen to a person today? Well, my assumption is it can happen, or else this teaching would not be in place. But the good news for us is, if you're here today, the probability of your being here to hear this teaching of Jesus from the Scripture would be that today is the day of your salvation. And if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, then He will save you as you come to Him and say, I am wrong, Lord, to have tried to control my own life. I have deceived myself in saying that I have no sin that would keep me out of heaven. And Today is, in fact, the day of your salvation. Why is blaspheming the Holy Spirit the eternal sin? Well, I invite you to turn back to the book of John for a moment. The 15th chapter of John. John 15. We're going to look at the last two verses of the 15th chapter of John. And then we're going to look at a few verses in the next chapter. Look at verse 26 of John 15. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. What is the role of the Holy Spirit of God as described by Jesus? What is his responsibility? It's to bear witness that Jesus is God come in the flesh, that Jesus is the Son of God, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world from those hearts that are trusting in him. Now let's look in chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, 
But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So, who bears witness to your heart or to my heart that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus? Well, it's Holy Spirit. And so you can see why blaspheming the Holy Spirit is to be understood as hearing the truth about Jesus from the Holy Spirit and then stiff-arming him and saying it's absolutely absurd. It is absolutely untrue. I prefer ruling my own life. I prefer believing what I believe rather than what the Holy Spirit of God says to me. And the result of that is eternal separation from God forever, forever, and forever. Let me remind you as I finish today of the first prophecy that these scribes would certainly have known that was given by God the Father in the book of Genesis chapter 3. You know Genesis chapter 3? It tells the story of the fall of man. And in Genesis chapter 3, God pronounces some curses upon the various people involved. And he begins with the devil. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. And he says, her seed will crush your head. You will only bruise her seed's heel. We know that refers to the cross, doesn't it? Jesus took a, a hit from the devil. But what did Jesus do on the cross? He crushed the head of the devil. He says it's finished in this passage of Scripture. Well, the devil is still alive and well, it seems, on planet Earth. He's doing all he can. I'll never forget as a boy when I was visiting my grandparents in the country, as we say, where I came from in Tennessee. And I had gotten in trouble with my aunt, who ran the household at that time. My grandparents were old and infirmed. And she'd gotten on to me. I didn't even know what I had done. It was construed as disobedience. I'm sure I disobeyed. And I ran outside, and just with no thought at all, I began to climb up a tree. Maybe I was thinking I could hide from her if I got up in the tree. I don't know. But as I began to climb the trunk of that tree, there was a snake slithering up the tree. And, of course, I jumped down, and I probably screamed really loudly. And my uncle came out, and he knocked the snake off the tree, and he crushed the head of the snake. It was a copperhead snake. It was a poisonous snake, and he killed it. And you know what? That snake wiggled and wriggled a long time after that, even though it was brain dead. It was still wiggling and wiggling and looked like it was trying to come back to life. But it couldn't because its head had been crushed. That's what Jesus did. 
when he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. He crushed the devil's head. And we who know Jesus can live above the influence of the world and of our own flesh and of Satan himself if we know him and we embrace him and trust him. Quick summary. For you who may be an unbeliever, you've never really fully trusted Christ, the gospel is not difficult to understand. Christ died for your sins. You have to admit you're a sinner and be sorry for your sin. Not be cavalier about it, nonchalant about it, or casual about it. Say, Lord, I do know I'm a sinner. I am sorry. And then the scripture says Jesus was buried, verifying his death, and then he was raised again according to the scripture. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, not just Savior, he is Lord. He's ultimately your authority. That's where you're transferring trust from you to him. Confess Jesus Christ is Lord with your mouth and believe that God has raised him from the dead. You believe in your heart that he is alive and he's been raised. You shall be saved from your sins. That's it. Would you bow your head? If you've never received Christ, what a great day to do it. Could you just say to Jesus, Jesus, I know that I have been self-deceived. I have thought that I really am not a sinner. Lord, I have compared myself with other people and found people that I'm better than morally. And Lord, I know that I have sinned, and I want to ask you, Lord, to forgive me of my sin. I need you, Lord. I can't do it alone anymore. I want to give you control of my life. I believe that you're alive. I believe you're going to come and live in me. And I ask you to do that, not simply as a guest, but for the Lord of my life, to be my leader, my boss be the one that I refer to for every decision to do your will. Thank you, Lord. I claim the promise of your word, which says, if I receive you into my life as an act of faith, then I am a child of God. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.